0: Yale Podcast
1: Network. From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in LA. I'm Erin Tracy. On the podcast today, Stephanie Folsom. Um, I'll be honest, I don't know Stephanie very well. Uh, I was introduced to her by a friend, um, but she seems like a really incredible young writer with a great story. She wrote a script uh, on spec, that sounds really interesting, and it got onto The Blacklist, which she'll talk about, uh, which is sort of a famous um, Hollywood inventory for the best unproduced screenplays. And since then, um, she's, her career has sort of skyrocketed. She's uh, writing Toy Story 4 for Pixar, uh, taking the reins of that massive billion dollar franchise um, she did some writing on a Marvel movie um, it seems like she's just doing incredibly well and I can't wait to, uh, to hear about it and hear about what it's like to work at Pixar especially so uh, here she is Stephanie Folsom By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft, who are spreading the word about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and more. Hi, Stephanie.
2: Hi, Aaron. (laughs)
1: Um, It's very nice to talk to you. You too. Um, So you had me call you at your Pixar office, which sounds like the coolest address ever.
2: It's not bad. It's not bad. I have no complaints.
1: Um, so, what's the? I, I guess I, I, you're the first person I've talked to who works at Pixar who writes for Pixar. What's the? What's the sort of Pixar campus vibe like?
2: Um, it's it's pretty great. It's kind of like this wonderful mixture of like a Silicon Valley startup and a movie studio. So you know you get like all these perks of like people like riding around on scooters, like you would at a startup right. and you have like all these like you know smoothies and coffees, but then you also of course have like all the functioning like things that you have with a regular studio
1: and is it is it like one of these giant campuses with that feels like a small city? I mean, are there tons and tons of people at Pixar?
2: No, there's only three buildings it's It's not that big
1: okay. and you said it was uh what outside San Francisco somewhere?
2: Yeah, it's outside San Francisco.
1: Okay. And um, so you moved up there when you got the job, I guess we haven't said. So you're writing Toy Story 4.
2: Yes, I am. And that's part of the Pixar gig, you got to be here on site. And it's just kind of the nature of animation. You really can't write in a vacuum when you're doing animation. Hmm.
1: Had you written animation before?
2: No, this is my first time. Wow. <laughs> How are
1: you liking that uh, process?
2: It's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, I feel like both live action and animation have their own sets of issues, um, and there's something about animation that's really liberating, where you're not just stuck with what you shot, and you're not just dealing with like the physical limitations of a location. Right. You can pretty much put whatever you want in the frame. But then there's the flip side of that, where you can put whatever you want. I in know the frame. that sounds so scary. I always <laughs> think
1: like creativity comes from having limits, you know, right. not the opposite. Yeah, yeah so you
2: kind of have to almost like engineer some limits so you can function.
1: <laughs> wow. But wait, so so having never written animation before, like. Uh, you know, so you show up at Pixar on your first day and you have like weeks of tutorials to understand it or is it really just storytelling is storytelling?
2: well i believe like storytelling is storytelling it's just different processes and different systems of how it's done you know and just different places just i mean even within just the live action space like different studios have their own way of doing things and it's just you know they just threw me in the deep end of the pool and they were like good luck swimming <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow is intense man that's amazing um how long a process is it from start to finish
2: um, it usually takes them five to seven years to do one
1: film. <laughs> wow. <laughs>
2: I was like, try like not to cry. I just laugh.
1: <laughs> um, but, but what, I mean, a franchise, I mean, this is like a billion dollar franchise. This is one yeah. of their most important titles. Is is it really, are they going to be that deliberate and slow about it? Or are they, they're not trying to rush it to market at all?
2: No, I mean they—they have been that deliberate and slow about it, and oh. um, fortunately, you know, big bad Disney has actually is very kind to this place, and uh, they like give them the space that they need to do what they do. Right. So,
1: and, I mean, how long? Uh, how long is, how long of that five to seven years is going to be the, the actual writing stage? I mean, is it like you write a script and then you're going to have to come back in and do a lot of rewriting when it comes to animating it, or is it consistent over a short burst of time or what?
2: Oh, no, it's like, I mean, I've been up here about a year or more. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it's just, it's kind of like this constant back and forth when it comes to animation because, you know, you, you, you write it and then they immediately storyboard it. And you can literally just play it right there in storyboard form and see what you need to change. So then you rewrite it off the storyboards and you just keep doing kind of this back and forth process between you and the artist, which is really like the collaboration is great.
1: Wow. But I'm sorry, when you do those storyboards, I mean, no one's no one's voicing the characters at that point. It's literally just drawings well, on the uh, page? No,
2: we draw the storyboards, and part of our process is uh, putting up reels where they actually do, like, full soundtrack. They edit the storyboards together. We uh, either bring in temp actors or the actual actors and record it to see how the line reads are going and everything. So we literally, you know, just iterate the film over and over and over. And I think that's why Pixar movies are so great. Like, you just keep doing it until you get it right.
0: Wow.
1: And do you have a writer's room?
2: Um, No, it's it's me, but I'm part of a story team. So I am the only one writing, but I have like these amazing artists that are supporting me and have great storytelling skills and are able to help craft the story. So I'm the only one physically typing, Uh but I have a whole story department with me.
1: That's helpful. Um, Have you, uh, you know, gone out to coffee or lunch with the writers of the first three Toy Stories or of the writers of any of the great Pixar movies?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, the great thing is, is that they constantly, like, bring back in people that have worked here to kind of, like add help to other projects and to talk to writers that are working on things. Like Michael Arndt, I've got to meet with, and he's just amazing and been so helpful and so insightful. Hmm. You know, Meg Lafave is another one who's just been wonderful and such a great mentor. So they don't, they don't leave you completely hanging while you're swimming in the deep end of the pool.
1: That's great. And isn't it Michael Arndt who did the, um, the uh, like, 10-minute uh, sort of animation about story structure that you can find online?
2: Yes, completely. And he was just saying like how he developed that through like kind of his trial by fire on Toy Story Three here. Oh, and wow. just how it, he like kind of because you have to do things over and over, like you're just working these story muscles over and over and over again and you just start to just kind of I kind of liken it to like playing an instrument. Um, I mean, like I played piano as a kid, and first you like learn where to put your fingers on the keys, and then you learn how to like read the music, and you get your hands to go with the music, and then suddenly you're just playing music without really thinking about it. And I feel like the same is is with writing. Like when you first start out, you're like, oh, should that happen on that page? Is this good? Is this structure good? And then you know you work your muscle enough, and you're able to just you know get it to a point where you can. And just write, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think this place is great at getting you to that point. But that being said, I feel like the journey of learning how to write never completely stops, which right. is part of the reason I love it. <laughs>
1: and I mean, how does it work in a place like that? Are you sort of working banker's hours? Do you show up on campus at 9am and leave at six? Or is it you come in for short bursts?
2: It's totally banker's hours, which it's so sad. This has been my first, like, real office job. Yeah. And I realized that I didn't have any clothes to be in public five <laughs> days a week. So, like, literally, I had to go get, like, grown-up people clothes. So I wasn't just showing up in pajamas. It was so sad because I had, like, three outfits that I would wear for meetings. All right. And that was it. <laughs> <The> <laughs> yeah, rest I know exactly pajamas what you mean. And yoga pants. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. completely. I rent an office in New York where I where I do my writing, and so that forced me to go get a bunch of you know J. Crew long sleeve shirts because oh, it's yeah. very different than when you're just writing in your living room.
2: Completely. Like I ended up like buying out J. Crew because I was <laughs> just like, I need real pants.
1: <laughs> right. um, were you a fan of the uh, of Toy Story one, two, and three?
2: I was a huge fan. I mean, it was kind of funny when I first met Pixar, I was like, what's your favorite Pixar movie? And I was like Toy Story, and they're like, oh, way to kiss up. But I was like, no, really, Toy Story. Wait, was
1: this when you were sort of um, auditioning for the job?
2: Yeah, well, I had it was just a general meeting just to meet on, you know, something came up, and I was like, no, I love Toy Story, and I was just geeking out about Toy Story, having no idea that I would ever get this gig. <laughs> yeah.
1: So that was one of the important movies to you as a kid.
2: Oh, completely. It's one of my formative movies, you know, and, uh, which is wonderful, but it's also, it's like, I feel like a weight of responsibility to be like, oh, this has to be good. Right. (laughs) Well, Michael
1: Arndt must have been helpful with that. Didn't, didn't he write on one of the Star Wars?
2: Yeah, he did. And he wrote Toy Story 3 and he was just, he's just been, he's just been a great resource, you know, um, and, he kind of knows the secret sauce.
1: Yeah, no, that's it. And you can tell from that video, which people should find online, where he sort of explains the um, story structure and uh, mostly focuses on sort of act one, which I oh, found incredible. Oh, it's invaluable. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so, you know, I would also imagine with a with a franchise like Toy Story that's, you know, that big and that's, Worth, you know, literally over a billion dollars yeah, uh, to the yeah, studio. Yeah,
2: don't stress me out. Or
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, okay, let me stress you out for a second, and then you, we can talk about something um, less stressful. But do you, I mean, they must have corporate overlords peeking over your shoulder, no?
2: Um. There are, but I have to say that I think it's because we're not in LA that um, oh, yeah. the executive leadership here does a good job of you not knowing that's going on behind the scenes.
1: That's great. That's fantastic. So you can just be free to be an artist and write this just like it's just like any other script you've written.
2: Oh, completely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's a complete luxury to not have to have that, you know, Right. that as well. <laughs> and
1: how does it work? So when you're working for Pixar, are you are you exclusive to Pixar or are you allowed to go pitch other projects around town?
2: You have to be exclusive to Pixar, at least on the feature side, uh-huh. um, just because it's that much work and that consuming. Right. You know, you really can't have fractured focus while you're up here. And usually like I tend to work on three things at once, just in different phases. Right. Um, but This has been so immersive that even like that as my common practice, it would be impossible to implement while working on this movie.
1: Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm the same way where I have, you know, a a bunch of different projects going at once when I'm in development. But if I go into production on something, that's the entire focus. And it feels a little bit like you're just constantly in production, even though you're in development.
2: Oh, no, I'm constantly in production, yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, uh, that's kind of cool, though. I mean, you know, if it was a lame project, that would be a bummer, but when oh, it's Toy awful, Story 4. Oh, it'd yeah, yeah.
2: I, it's, it's fine playing in this world. Like, full totally. tilt boogie. <laughs> and
1: do they ever, um, I mean, I assume they have multiple features in different stages of production at once on the campus, right?
2: Oh, completely, yeah. They have one building's development and one building's production, and that that's pretty much how they divide it up.
1: And do, you ever, do they ever pull you into other, um, you know, development projects, you know, just to get your two cents? Or they really try to keep you just entirely focused on Toy Story?
2: Well, no, they, they kind of like to make everything a team effort here, which is it's really kind of beautiful. I mean, they have this whole idea of, like, this brain trust where, you know, all the writers, the directors, um, and the producers get together and um, really help brainstorm and give notes on all the projects the studio has.
1: That's awesome. So you're getting to see just the very early germinations of of you know the future Pixar films.
2: Yes, I know it all. That's <laughs> fun. <laughs> That's very and fun. And I'm under NDA all the time. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> I know my husband was like, "How is work?" and I can just only say, "Good."
1: <laughs> like, <laughs> Is that right? NDAs count even among spouses? Yeah. So yeah. Well, I, I
2: often have to like swear I'm to secrecy and I'd be like, we did not have this conversation. <laughs> right, yeah. Sometimes I feel like I have a spy job with really silly info. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I I had a meeting recently uh, for the first time ever. Um, I went to uh, meet a movie company and at the front door at reception, they made me sign an NDA before I could walk past reception.
2: Yeah, it was that's Le- pretty common.
1: What? I've never seen that before. I've been to. You don't get that at Amblin. You don't get that at JJ no, Abrams' company. if you, if you company. go to
2: any of the Disney divisions, uh-huh. they make you sign away your life before you can even walk in the building. <laughs> oh, <laughs>
1: funny! This is my first experience with that, and it was at LeBron James's company.
2: Oh, that's uh, weird. Yeah,
1: which I thought was <laughs> interesting. Um, that's it. Yeah. Uh, wow. Okay. So you're used to that.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, Marvel, you have to sign in, Lucasfilm, you have to sign in here, you have to sign in. And it's just because the projects are just up on the wall. So.
1: Right. Um, and so how did you first get hooked up with Pixar?
2: Um, let me think. I mean, I, uh, I'd written a um, – a, uh, I've, I've worked for pretty much every division of Disney. Um, except for Disney Animation, and Pixar was really the only one that was left. So um, I, felt, I felt like they were just like, let's complete her loop. <laughs> yeah, that's, by the
1: way, that's like not how it works, that they're trying to create an even playing field like that, yeah.
2: Yeah, no, it was just strange because I, uh, I just got like a, a small job for Disney um, live ac- live action, um, which is I think kind of got the, my foot in the door, and while that project didn't move forward. I was like, that just built up goodwill. So mm-hmm. then they referred me for the Marvel job and then the Marvel job referred me for the Pixar job, which referred me um, to some stuff that I've done at Lucasfilm as well. So I think it's just building those relationships and, you know, if people like to work with you and you do good work, it just leads to more work, fortunately. Right. I'm like, knock on wood. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's how it
1: should work and how often it does not work. But that's a, that's really great. Oh yeah,
2: that. and and I I'm I'm very, I feel very very lucky. I mean I'm sure my career will go at a downswing at some point because that's just the nature of things. But I'm I'm like oh, I'm employed. Ooh, <laughs> thank goodness.
1: But I mean yeah, the nice thing is that you know a lot of times with with independent film or with you know even especially almost with uh, with big studio films, they go through you know what five six seven writers writers just keep getting fired and hired back on and, and so forth. But it you know, it sounds like working at some of these companies where you're just, you're so much more enmeshed. You know, you're on the campus, you're out of L.A. and San Francisco. It just feels, um, I don't know, it feels like, it feels more like a normal job than the than the usual treachery of Hollywood.
2: It—it. It, this is the first time I've ever felt like I have a normal job. And it took me a little while to be okay with that because I was just like, wait, I have to be somewhere at a time. Right. And, Oh, I'm gonna have to put on makeup. Oh jeez. <laughs>
1: uh, do you like it in the end? do you can you imagine going back to a world where you're just you know sitting in your underpants in your living room writing spec scripts?
2: Yeah, I can. I think because that's essentially like my basic nature
1: <laughs> yeah. okay. that's your
0: all right that's, that's your my home comfort screen. zone yeah. yeah
2: I mean yeah I think I think all of us writers like all have I mean while we can be very extroverted and very friendly like there's our introvert that's just like I just want to hide and play right. pretend
1: completely completely um, well, okay. So how did, um, how did you first, you know, start working for any of these companies? Am I right that you had a blacklist script that was sort of your first big thing and, you know, made a lot of waves and got you a lot of meetings?
2: Yeah. I mean, that was the first thing that caught attention. But of course, before that blacklist script, there were dozens of scripts that were just in a drawer and, um. I should never, ever be taken out of that drawer, (laughs) you know, and I think I finally just I was I was actually about to quit the business just because I was getting so frustrated with all the no's and I was like, what am I doing with my life, you know? And I, I think out of that frustration came this script I wrote, 1969, A Space Odyssey. And it, I think I was just like, I'm not, I don't care if it's commercial. I don't care if anybody likes it. I'm so sick of all of this. Like, I, I'm just going to do something I like. So I, um, I'm a huge cinephile. So I was like, oh, Stanley Kubrick. You know, I love conspiracies. I don't necessarily believe in all of them because I don't think people are that. Together, um, but <laughs> right. but I love conspiracies and I love space and science. So I just kind of took all those passions and was like wrote about that. You know, and my script was about Stanley Kubrick faking the moon landing. Um, That's a great idea. And like and an alternate it, history. Yeah, it's an alternate history, and it's told from the point of view <clears throat> of a P, a woman who um, in PR at NASA who is really trying to like prove herself and and make a way in, in a complete. Man's world of space exploration, um, so that ended up being like, and I, th- I think a lot of my frustration like went into her character as well. I was like, why do they keep telling me no? Um, right. <laughs> that. And, and then that ended up just striking a nerve, and I, and I was, I was surprised because I just expected to just like write that, get it out of my system, and then just be like, hey, you know, it didn't work. Like I'll always just have to write for me. You know, I, I may not be able to do this as a living. I'll just have to do it as a hobby. And then that hit, and then I've been working ever since then. So, um,
1: that's so awesome. Um, So first question is, when you were thinking about quitting the business, what would what would you do instead?
2: Um, I didn't really have an answer, which I think is is probably a good thing. I was just like, Oh, like uh, maybe I can like move back in with my parents and maybe I'll teach. I I don't think I seriously made a plan B um, because I didn't really envision myself being anything else. And I think that to do this crazy business, you have to be incapable of doing anything else.
1: If you can do anything else, go do that. Go
2: do that because this this is not... I mean, I love what I do, and I feel so lucky to do what I do. But I mean, it, you have to be a bit of a masochist to be into this. <laughs> yes,
1: well said. You're at, you're a thousand percent right because it's it doesn't always work on um, you know. It's not like talent always rises. It's oh, not no. like yeah, the people who should be rewarded are. Everything takes way longer than you want it to. It's a it's a really um, tough business. A friend of mine. Uh, Jesse Stern says that it's a war of attrition. It and is, it's, yeah, and and the people who stick around and have that requisite talent are the ones who make it.
2: Yeah, and I would say that yeah, I just I just fought for a while, and finally someone noticed when I was about to cash it in. Like, yeah.
1: <laughs> how close were you to cashing it in?
2: I literally was like, if I was like, if nobody responds to this uh, in some. Manner. I mean, I wasn't like, oh, it has to sell, it has to anything. But I'm like, if I can't even get, like, a meeting off of this, then I need to seriously reevaluate. <laughs> wow.
1: And then how did you feel when it got onto the blacklist? I mean, how did you find out that it was on the blacklist?
2: Um, uh, they they call you, like, you find out, uh, like, a couple days before it announces that it's going to be on that. And I found out from my manager because they called him to get, like, all my, my – representation info and the log line and all of that. And then he was like, he's like, so the blacklist called wanting all this. So I think you're on the blacklist.
1: Hmm, that's awesome.
2: And I was like, really?
1: <laughs> and have you been with the same agency?
2: Yeah, I have. I mean, they all signed on with me before I got on the blacklist. They read the script and they were into it. And so I feel like, if they were with me when i had nothing like yeah. <laughs> they're, they're pretty good reps <laughs> yeah
1: well i love that but that's also you know that says a lot about you that you're you know staying loyal to them um and hopefully they're still doing a good job i mean it sounds well, they, like your career been is going great pretty well. to
2: me yeah I, and it's funny because i feel like i mean most writers just gripe about their reps and i feel like mine have always fought and worked really hard for me and so i'm a i I think that I think it's important that when you're picking a rep, you're not just like grateful for anything that comes your way that you actually are like, I have to have a working relationship with these people. And are these people that, you know, I want to have a working relationship with, talk to on a daily basis, you know, like, would I invite them over for dinner? I think those are all like really strong considerations you have to have when picking your representation. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, no,
1: good point. Um, It also will prevent resentment down the line if you feel like they, you know, haven't done as much as you want them to and you're still giving them ten percent and, you know, if you actually like the people and, you know, if you're fond of them personally, then I think that resentment probably lessens.
2: Oh, completely. And you always have to have an open dialogue, you know? I mean, if if you feel like something's not working, like you just gotta be like, hey, like I'm feeling like this isn't working. Like how do we figure this out? And, you know, and if they're not willing to have that conversation and come to a solution, then, you know, that's the sign, like, oh, maybe we need to break up. Yeah,
1: totally. Um, and you said uh, you wrote the script about Stanley Kubrick because you were a big cinephile. What are uh, what are what what were the important movies to you growing
0: up?
2: Um, I don't know. I, I grew up just watching a lot of old movies on cable television. Um, so I would have to say, like, the big influencers for me were... I loved the third man. Hmm.
1: Orson Welles, right?
2: Yeah, I, I just think it has one of the best character introductions ever yeah. with Harry Lime. Yeah. Um, I really love um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah. It's a huge, I mean, I, I think like William Goldman was like the first screenwriter that I actually really became aware of.
1: Totally. So many people uh, have that same story with yeah, William Goldman. Yeah, and I
2: was just like, oh, like he just, he does... Something that's so hard where he perfectly combines drama and pathos with humor. Yeah. And um, it's, it's this secret combo that, that very few people can really hit. But when you hit that note, I think that's when you get real cinema gold.
1: Yeah, no, could not agree more. And so, you know, I actually asked you um, if there was a scene from someone else's work that um, you wanted to play and then talk about from a craft perspective. Um, You picked a clip from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid by William Goldman. It's Robert Redford as a Sundance Kid and Paul Newman as Butch Cassidy. They are late 19th century outlaws. Um, basically running from uh, the sheriff uh, and his group, his posse, um, and they find themselves on the edge of the cliff, on the edge of a cliff uh, in the scene that we're about to play, and below them is running water. You're going to hear the rushing water um, throughout the clip, and so they're completely cornered, and they're uh, trying to figure out what to do. Um, so let's play the clip.
0: If we fight, we stay right where they are and starve us out or go for position, shoot us. Might even get a rock slide started and get us that way. What else can I do? They could surrender to us, but I wouldn't count on that. They're going for position, all right. Better get ready. Kid, the next time I say, let's go someplace like Bolivia, let's go someplace like Bolivia. Next time. Ready? No, we'll jump. Like hell we will. No, it'll be okay. If the water's deep enough, we don't get squished to death. They'll never follow us. How do you know?
1: Would you make a jump like that and you didn't have to?
0: I have to, and I'm not gonna. Well, we got to, otherwise we're dead. they are just gonna have to go back down the same way they come. Come on. Just one clear shot, that's all I come want. Come on. Uh-uh. We got to. Up. Get away from me. Why? I want to fight him. They'll kill us. Maybe. You want to die? Do you? All right. I'll jump first. No. Then you jump first. No, I said. What's the matter with you? I can't swim! (laughs) Why, are you crazy? The
2: fall will probably kill you.
1: All right, so tell us, Stephanie, why you, uh, why you like that scene so much.
2: Well, I, I think that, um, <laughs> you know, there's always an easy solution with what to do with your characters, um, which is usually the first thought that pops into your head. Um, but you always have to literally, like, put them either back them into a corner or put them on the edge of a cliff. And I love the <laughs> fact that this movie literally put the characters on the edge of of a cliff and you're just like what are like you're sitting there with them and like oh my god what are they going to do and i think that this scene really works on multiple levels it really establishes their banter you know their relationship you know and their friendship is really clear in this their how they interact with each other is just amazing and it also shows you the stakes of the story like they you know they're, they're stuck between like we can jump off a cliff and die, or we can be shot by the sheriff and die. And I'm going to spoil the movie for people who haven't seen it right now. The movie but is
1: 40 years old. <laughs> 50
2: exactly. years old. If yeah. you haven't seen it, that's your problem. Right. And I think it really prepares the audience for a non traditional ending in a beautiful way. Yeah, no, that's because well it gets you okay with the idea yeah. that these characters are all right. With dying, as long as they get to choose how it happens,
1: right? And that's why the line, which has now become, you know, it's entered the lexicon. It's, it's, it's such a giant. Um uh, you know, reference for other movies, for TV shows, just people say it in in normal conversation. It's the fall that's going to kill you. Yep. Um, I remember there's a there's a great moment in The West Wing um, where CJ and and Josh talk about it. You know, here's Robert Redford completely paralyzed, terrified that he's going to um, drown. He doesn't know how to swim, and that's just, you know, Paul Newman, it's it's almost like a, a bit of uh, wisdom from life. Don't worry about whether or not you know how to swim. You're going to die from the fall.
2: Yeah. <laughs> You're worrying about all the wrong things. Right. And it's just, it's so, it's such a genius turn that, you know, I mean, Robert Redford's character is so Stoic and just serious through the entire thing. Right. And such just like a badass. But the fact that this guy can't swim is just... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you saw him do everything else great.
1: Oh, right. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> right. It's He's so... Um even with his best friend here and with his life in line, he's so nervous about admitting the fact that he can't swim because he feels like it's going to make him yeah, less of a man or something. Yeah, he,
2: he never admits any weakness. And so it's like that's also just his first like, real vulnerable moment in the right. movie. Right, totally.
1: <laughs> and then just what a great turn when instead of making fun of him for that or trying to you know, explain to him, well, you know you can doggy paddle, I'll help you out, something like that, Paul Newman just laughs and says, don't worry about it, we'll be dead by the time you hit the water.
2: Yeah, and, and that tells you everything you need to know about those two guys.
1: Right, totally. Um, we had uh, Michael Rausch on the, on the podcast, um, who's a great uh, TV showrunner, and his clip uh, that he wanted to play was the fight scene um, when Butch and Sundance first get back to the Hole in the Wall gang, and uh, Butch has to fight Harvey for the leadership of the gang.
2: Oh, that's another good one. Oh,
1: it's a killer scene. There's so many great scenes in this.
2: Oh, yeah. And that's just the magic of William Goldman. Yeah. I mean,
1: you, what was your first William Goldman? Was it Princess Bride?
2: Well, yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> and then you realize, oh, my God, there's a writer behind
2: this. And so yeah. you're And then he's done other things. And then I saw Butch Cassie in The Sundance Kid. And yeah. I would have to say that that oh, I'm probably going to get hate mail for this, but that <laughs> ended up beating out Princess Bride for me. Like, and
1: uh, where do you put all the President's Men in that
2: list? Oh, gosh. I mean, that's in my top ten as well. Yeah. You know, and it just shows his range, too, because, you know, I mean, I think he uses a little bit of humor in all the President's Men just to get the character dynamics going. But, I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a big deal drama. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, the fact that he can do a political thriller, a romantic fantasy... Uh, you know, an outlaw gang uh, film. I mean, he just, it, you know, he also wrote Misery, which is like oh, a comedy yeah. horror. Maverick, which is like a comedy farce. I mean, yeah. Marathon Man, which is straight-up thriller.
2: Which is straight-up thriller. Yeah. And I think what so makes good. William Goldman work is his characters. You know, I mean, I think he just has such an understanding of the human condition and how people interact with each other that he really can put that into any in any genre.
1: And is that something you think about uh, with Toy Story? I mean, is it about, have you spent a lot of time writing character biographies or character sketches or are you mostly focused on plot? Uh, what sort of is, uh, maybe every day is different, but I'm curious what the Yeah, is. I mean,
2: I think when you're dealing with like a big franchise, like who the characters are, you know, like their backstory, the whole world knows their backstory. Um, so it's about Figuring out where they are now, right? Um, and how would that backstory? How would that shape them to be who they are in, in, in the current situation you have them in, right? Um, and for me, I always I always look at things character first, because um, I uh, I have like a concept, you know, and and this is outside of Toy Story, but like I have a concept of like what I want my movie to be about, but then I really dig into those characters because those characters. You know, once you formulate their personalities and who they are and their relationships and how they interact with each other and what they need to learn over the course of of the journey that you're sending them on, that's really going to dictate like where you take them in your plot. Hmm. You know, and I think like the best stories come from a character perspective and where you get those wonderful, surprising moments where you're like, How the hell is that character going to get out of this? comes from You know, their choices that they make as a living, breathing, you know, pretend human being. (laughs) Totally.
1: No, I... I think about that all the time. Um, You know, a lot of people you see, especially with like newer writers, they try to elucidate character through giving, you know, their backstory, what their parents were like, how their parents treated them, where they went to college, what their friends were like, you know, basically sort of their resume. But the best way to elucidate character is to put your character in a situation where he or she has to choose between two alternatives. And the choice that they make is going to tell you everything you need to know about them.
2: Exactly. And, and I think also it's like, yes, you do need to know your character's backstory. You as the, you know, the writer need to know their resume, but that just shades what you do. Your audience doesn't need all that info because they need to be in the moment with your character.
1: Right. Totally. Um, and so, uh, I was looking, I, I looked you up online and there was some stuff about, uh, the situation you went through on Thor um, certainly, oh, yeah. we don't need to talk about it if you if you feel talked out about it um, enough. But if you're if you're game, um, I would love to hear a little bit about um, you know what that experience was like. I guess you were sort of denied screenplay credit on the the most recent Thor movie.
2: Yeah, you know, and I think it's always hard on these big movies because it you know it really does take multiple people when you're dealing with entire cinematic universes to come in. And, and, and write these things. And I think that, um, you know, there's just a lot of work to be done on how writers are given credit on the current landscape, mm-hmm. you know, and I think a lot of how um, credits are determined are based on an old system where writers created the intellectual property Hmm. and created the characters instead of coming in you know and working on existing property that's
1: interesting right that's something that's very different over the last It's very different so
2: i you know i think the guild is working to get things more in line with the current state of the business which is great um but you know there's just still a lot of work that needs to be done on that front
1: Mm -hmm. and aside from from the arbitration issue did you enjoy your experience working at marvel
2: yeah it was it was it was a good experience it was a crazy experience i mean literally well you have like three movies going on at one time and it's like oh hey like we had thor do this and this we better let the avengers guys you know (laughs) like like, (laughs) wow yeah totally so so it's just constantly you know and then luckily like kevin has all pretty much the entire cinematic universe in his head. So
0: uh,
2: he's able to keep track of a lot of that. But also like you, you as, you know, as a creative in that process also have to like clock a lot of what's going on with all that as well. So it's not just about your movie, but it's also the ramifications that it has on like the things that happened before and the things that happened after. Right. (laughs) And,
1: And again, like billion dollar franchises, like what you decide has, you know, major ripple effects.
2: Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> well, that one's over.
1: That one's in the can. You're <laughs> yeah. fine. It was very successful. <laughs>
2: okay, good. Cool. Uh, um,
1: were you Were you a comic book fan growing up? Were you a fan of Thor? Did you know anything about Thor?
2: I, I was never like a huge Thor fan. And I think that's why I got the job because I was able to bring an outsider perspective to it. But I am a comic book fan. Um, I think my gateway drug was really uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Hmm. Because, you know, I think as like a teenage girl, I didn't really relate to a lot of the superhero stuff. I mean, other than X-Men, I I liked X-Men, but like I couldn't relate to Superman. Batman, I, I found it interesting, but I didn't really relate to it. And then when I found Sandman, I was like, oh, my gosh, there's something outside of the superhero world where you can go on kind of like a fantastical journey with these pictures. And it doesn't have to be a straight superhero story. And then once I got into Sandman, that was kind of I call it like my gateway drug. (laughs) I just started like finding all kinds of like crazy comics and indie stuff. And I've been a fan ever since.
1: How cool. And then but if you if you weren't sort of an expert in thor and it sounds like that's one of the reasons why you were attractive to them how do you go about um you know learning sort of everything you need to know about thor in order to create a new chapter for him
2: well it was crazy cuz i i did um a little bit of my homework you know when i went in and pitched for the job and then I didn't think I stood a chance in hell of getting that job. And then when I got it, I was like, oh, my God, I have to go read the whole canon. Right, Thor. seriously. So, like, literally, I spent just three days reading <laughs> every single Thor comic, every Thor spin off comic, you know. And because a lot of Planet Hulk was used in the movie as well, like, I had to read all of, like, Hulk, Planet Hulk, all the Hulk stuff. So wow. I am now an expert on... <laughs> all of that. It
1: was <laughs> awesome. Was that fun? Did you enjoy that 3 days?
2: I it was it was stressful but it was fun cuz I just love I love that stuff. So yeah. it was it was fun but I was also just I wanted I wanted to, it to be more leisurely, like, exploration instead of, I, I've got a cram for the test. Right, <laughs> right.
1: I've had that happen a couple of times where I've gone on to, you know, to write for a show that's in, like, its third or fourth or fifth season or something, and so then you immediately go back and you try to get all the old, you know, uh, episodes and just, you know, binge them, but...
2: Yeah, uh, completely. <laughs> it's kind of a fun thing.
1: It's like getting, it's like you're being paid to watch TV, which is always oh, a yeah, nice Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: No, I was like, I, I'm getting free comics and I'm being paid <laughs> to read them, and yeah. I'm like, oh my goodness! Yeah,
1: it's a good feeling. Um, so I know you got to uh, go back to work here in a few minutes, but um, you know, one one final question I wanted to ask is, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but I assume at at uh, at Marvel, at Lucasfilm, at Pixar, you're one of the few female screenwriters. Is that right?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, I would have to say that it's it's um, it's weird to be. <laughs> like the only one of your kind, right. you know, <laughs> right. in every meeting. <laughs> yeah.
1: And did, I mean, does that shape at all? Do you think how you, um, I don't know, how aggressive you are, or how um, laid back you are, or you know, does it affect, um, you know, uh, your contributions to the the screenplays, the or the projects? I should say.
2: Um. I don't know. I I try not to think of things in those terms. Yeah. Because I, I think that um, the second I, I I acknowledge which essentially is a reality that you know you in our society like I am to a certain extent in in a less powerful position just because of my gender um, I, I know that's a reality but I um, I kind of function in a level of delusion <laughs> <laughs> <Don't we all. laughs> that uh, that has serviced me well I just I just always assume that I'm equal and my ideas are just as valid and what I have to say is just as valid until until I encounter um, you know any type of you know discrimination or something and then I and then I just address it with the person like we're human beings you know and so far I've found that that's worked for me. You know, I, I just go into just assuming everything is going to be fair and, and good, you know, until I'm presented with a situation where it's not. And then, you know, you open a dialogue.
1: Right. That's great. And speaking of which, we got to let you get back to work there. So thank you so much for talking to us.
2: Oh, this is great. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I just I love talking film. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, I love that you're a
1: cinephile. Um, you know, let's definitely uh, talk more when you uh, when you come up for air.
2: That would be great. Thank you so much.
1: Okay. Bye, Stephanie. Bye. All right. And that was Stephanie Folsom. Uh, That was fun. I like her. Um, What a trip to go to work at Marvel every day and then Pixar every day. And I can't believe how many years she's going to be at Pixar as the sole writer of Toy Story 4. I do want to talk to her again about some of her cinematic influences. Uh, that was fun. So thank you so much as always to our producer here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, do us a favor and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Um, you can hit me with questions or complaints or whatever you want um, on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy or email me at Aaron dot tracy at
0: yale.edu see you guys next week